Last week, uh, Pastor Ron taught the second part of the provision for salvation. And in his lesson, he covered the distinct roles of the Trinity and their involvement in their work of salvation. Uh, if you weren't here for that class, I recommend that you listen to that in the, in the recording that's available on the website. Uh, this morning, I'll be discussing part one of the topic of the accomplishment of salvation. And in this class, I want us to focus on the person of Christ, as well as his unique qualifications for the work of salvation. Now, when we talk about the accomplishment of salvation, it isn't enough to simply say that Jesus died for sin, although that statement uh, is indeed profound and very true. But in order to fully understand salvation accomplished, we have to understand the elements that are involved in it, which are absolutely essential. And there's nothing more fundamental and foundational than the person of Christ in both his divinity and his humanity. So today, we'll be exploring a little bit of Christology, right? The doctrine of Christ. Um, and even though the class is the doctrine of salvation, I want to spend time on uh, the doctrine of Christ. Uh, because I, I think it's important that we talk about uh, why... Christ was the only one qualified for this work of salvation and just everything that's involved in the person and work of Jesus. Again, there's so much that can be said about the natures of Christ, but today I'll focus only on some that I think are essential to this uh, uh, doctrine of salvation. Uh, as we gather today on the Lord's Day, we do so in the name of Jesus, right? We come together as Christians and we come to the church, and we do so in the name of Jesus. John 14, 13 through 14 tells us that anything that we ask for in his name, referring to Jesus' name, this he will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In other words, we not only gather in his name, but we also pray in his name. The scriptures teach in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, that our very union is a union in Christ with the goal of obtaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This is the union that we have together. This is to say that Christ and all that he is, is a vital part of our faith. He is essential in every way. And the scripture talks about Christ as the center of all things. Let's look at Colossians 1, 15 through 17. I'll read it. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Okay, this is Jesus Christ. Now, unfortunately, in today's world, you might visit a church in which it may not seem as if Jesus Christ is the center of all things, right? You might find that the center is man when you visit some of the churches that you see today. However, I don't think that the truth of the importance of Christ can get any clearer than what we see in this passage, right? We see here that Jesus is the beginning, and by him all things were created. They were created through him and for him. In fact, everything that is exists only because he's holding it together. We see that in the last verse there. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
The centrality of Christ is vital in the Christian faith, primarily because his lordship is explicit in the word of God, but also because of what the word reveals about who Jesus is, namely his person and work, and all the implications that come from who he is. That's what we're going to talk about today. Now, sadly, many of us who bear the name Christian have trouble understanding the person of Christ. And I could admit, it isn't all easy to grasp. I myself grew up in a church, uh, or grew up in the church, and remember believing with all my heart that Jesus died for my sins, but never thought to ask why his death was even necessary, or why it had to be Jesus and not someone else. I never considered, you know, you know, why it had to be specifically Jesus dying for our sin. And these are things that I grew up never really thinking about. I just believed with faith that Jesus died for my sins. It, it was good enough because by faith we're saved, but I never thought through the implications. Why it had to be Jesus? What, what's so uh, special about this man that uh, makes him the only qualified person to atone for my sins? Uh, again, today... I want to stress to you that it is important to understand these truths. And if you never thought them through, I'm happy to interrupt your life with them now. But uh, first, I want to try something new. Uh, I, want, I, want to, I want us to take a quiz, like a pop quiz. Uh, I'm going to pose some questions about the person of Jesus Christ. And what I want you to do is, as I, as I pose these questions, if you have a piece of paper, you can even use your note sheet. Write down your answer. Now, I'm not going to review the answer. You don't have to tell anyone else your answers. This is for yourself, okay? Uh, you don't have to share with anyone, nor, nor will, will I expect you to share them out loud. In fact, I don't want you to do that. Um, but once we're done, uh, I'm going to go back to the questions and we'll review the answers, or I'll say the answers out loud, and you can look at them and see where you are in your understanding of Jesus. So pay close attention to the questions so that you can write your answers down. If you're ready, uh, say amen. amen. All right, okay, looks like we're ready, okay? So here are the questions. Question number one. Okay, by the way, I'm sorry, before I say the questions, it's done in a true, true and false format. So your, your answers are either gonna be true or false. So I'm just going to, the questions are really not questions, they're statements. And, and you, you write down whether it's a true statement or a false statement, okay? Question number one. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, 100% God, equal to the Father in every way, without distinction in person or being. Do you need me to repeat it? I'm going to repeat it just in case. Question number one, or statement number one. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, 100% God, equal to the Father in every way, without distinction in person or being. Okay, true or false. Question number two, or statement number two. The Son of God took on human flesh and dwelt on earth from infancy to adulthood, Though his mind and soul were kept in full deity. I'll repeat that. The Son of God 
took on human flesh and dwelt on earth from infancy through adulthood, though his mind and soul were kept in full deity. Statement number three. Jesus Christ was both God and man in a perfect blend, making his human nature divine and his divine nature human. True or false? I'll repeat that one. Jesus Christ was both God and man in a perfect blend, making his human nature divine and his divine nature human. True or false? Question number four, or statement number four. God is infinite, so when the Son of God put on human flesh, his human nature, while on earth, was also infinite and not finite. True or false? I'll repeat that one again. God is infinite, so when the Son of God put on human flesh, his human nature, while on earth, was also infinite and not finite. True or false? Then the last one, question number five. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and therefore his divine nature necessarily took over his human nature during his ministry on earth in order to accomplish the extravagant work of redemption. True or false? Yes. Question, uh, statement number five. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and therefore his divine nature necessarily took over his human nature during his ministry on earth in order to accomplish the extravagant work of redemption. True or false? Now, these questions are not just, by the way, these questions are not just questions uh, in order to see how smart you are in theology, uh, but rather these questions are posed so that you would be able to think about who your Savior is. Jesus Christ and how he's revealed in Scripture is very important. I would also add that the answers to these questions are what actually makes us distinctly Christian um, and not something else, not a Jehovah's Witness or, or a Mormon. Um, let's, let's go ahead and review the, the answers here. Question number one, uh, or statement number one, was Jesus Christ is the Son of God, 100% God, equal to the Father in every way, without distinction in person or being? The answer is false. The answer is false. I'll explain. <laughs> it's false. Although much of this statement is true, Jesus is 100% God, and he is equal to the Father, he is distinct in person, right? He's not distinct in being. He is God. He is one being. But he's distinct in person. That's why he's the second person of the Trinity. He is the Son of God, and he's not the Father, right? The false view that there are no distinctions in the person of the Trinity is actually a heresy called monarchianism. It was condemned in the first council of Constantinople. This was back in 381 A.D., the second uh, statement, the Son of God took on human flesh and dwelt on earth from infancy through adulthood, 
though his mind and soul were kept in full deity? Answer, false. <laughs> this is a heresy. <laughs> uh, this is a heresy called Apollinarianism, which is the idea that the only thing human about Jesus was his physical body, but the soul and the mind were always deity. That's false. Uh, this, is, this is basically baby Jesus knowing everything in the world uh, and pretending like he didn't know anything. You know, uh, just imagine the infant Jesus knowing all things, uh, you know, at, at the same time as if his mind was uh, fully developed, knowing all things, omniscient, yet he was just pretending as a baby. I, I feel a hand. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, so was there any part of his mind or soul that was divine? Uh, no. In, in his humanity, he was fully man, 100% in every way. And I'll explain, and we'll go through the, I, I know this is, this is, this is, it's always a shock, because we, not, many times we don't sit through and go through all these doctrines, uh, so I'll let it be a shock. But uh, the, the, the truth is that Jesus Christ had to be 100% man in every way in order for him to be uh, a qualified representative for man. So that meant his mind, that meant his soul, right? It wasn't that he just took on bones and skin and then deep down inside he was still um, uh, exercising his divinity. Uh, and this is the confusion about what they call the hypostatic union, which is that Jesus is 100% man, but he's also 100% God. There's no mixing, right? He had to be 100% God in every way, mind, soul, um, but he was also 100% God. And they were together in one being, in one person, and, and they existed in that way. But whenever you mix the two, right, where he... Be, he's more deity than he is uh, man, then he becomes less of a man, and the same way with his deity. Uh, if, if his humanity crosses over into the realm of his deity, then uh, he becomes less deity, which is actually impossible. We'll, we'll get into it as we, as we discuss the teaching today. Um, where are we? What question are we? Three. Question number three, G, uh, statement number three, Jesus was both God and man in a perfect blend, making his human nature divine and his divine nature human. That's what we're talking about. The answer to that is false. In the union of the divine and the human natures, there is no blend or mixture. Jesus Christ was not like Nesquik, right? There's milk and then you put quick and then you mix it and it becomes something else, chocolate milk. Uh, he, he was 100% God and 100% man, and there was no blend. It wasn't like a good mix, and then he was just a Superman kind of person, like a demigod. Uh, there was no mixture. By definition, a divine nature could never be human, nor could a human be divine in its own nature. One side would cease to be what it is if this were so. This would again undermine the necessity of Christ being 100% God and 100% man in order for salvation to be accomplished. Again, this was a heresy that was condemned in the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Statement number four. Uh, the statement is, God is infinite, so when the Son of God put on human flesh, his human nature while on earth was also infinite and not finite. Answer is false. Uh, Philippians 2.7 says that Jesus emptied himself 
taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. This is an indication that although his divine nature is infinite, he put on the finite. So his flesh never became divine uh, where his flesh was able to be in all places at once. Right? No, we see Jesus walking in the street. He was in one place at one time. Now, he was God even, even then. It just wasn't mixed. Okay? And the last statement was, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and therefore his divine nature necessarily took over his human nature during his ministry on earth in order to accomplish the extravagant work of redemption. The answer to that is false. The idea that Jesus Christ accomplished the work of redemption by allowing his divine nature to swallow up his human nature again defeats the purpose of him coming to earth to be human in order to live on behalf of other humans. And as we read in uh, Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Uh, yeah, Hebrews 4.15. So, with these questions, I hope it gets you to think on the, on the topic, which is the necessary qualification that we find in Jesus um, that salvation demands. Who Jesus was is an important factor in what Jesus accomplished. So, in today's lesson, I want us to focus on these unique qualifications. I'm going to touch on his divinity, right? I'm going to talk about his humanity, and you'll see that on your uh, handout. I'm going to talk about his sinlessness, and then the last point, I'm going to talk about his humiliation. Now, let's look at the first point, uh, his divinity. Now, I think it's only right to begin this topic of Christ's divinity by referring to the creed that has been confessed by the church universally since the earliest of times the Nicene Creed, which was adopted in 325 A.D. at the First Council of Nicaea. And I'll show it to you up here. Can someone read it? Thank you. <clears throat> and it is here that we see like this very strong emphasis of the full divinity of Jesus, right? Very God of very God. But more importantly, the church has confessed this because of a plain reading of the New Testament, right? These are creeds, they're man's creeds, but they're based on scripture. And, you know, it's, it's important to confess these things. This is what the church has believed. But more importantly, we see it plainly in the New Testament. And even the New Testament's use of the Old Testament, we see the same idea that Jesus Christ is actually God. I'm going to show you some verses. Romans 9, 5 says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Another verse, John 20, 27 through 28 says, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, 
and put, your, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Titus 2.13. Can someone read that one? Waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> Hebrews 1.8. Can someone read that? But of the Son who says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And the last one, 2 Peter 1 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained the faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Thank you. So. You see these verses, it's made plain that Jesus is God. We also see in the Old Testament, right, God is referred to as the first and the last. That's what they would call Elohim, Yahweh, the first and the last. You see that in Isaiah 48, 12. It says, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first and I am the last. Right, this is, this is God being called the first and the last. Now, when we fast forward into the New Testament, you look in uh, Revelation 2.8, and they're referring to Jesus as the first and the last. Look what it says here. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Right? The only one we know who died and came back to life is Jesus. And Jesus is being referred to in Revelation as the first and the last, right? This is where we tie uh, God and Jesus as, as, as one. Now, hopefully it's clear from these passages that Jesus is God. Many false religions and cults want to attack the Christian doctrine of the divinity of Christ. And it makes sense that they would want to do it because of their own theological developments that fit their religious system, which essentially is a man-centered, works-based religion. What is at stake? Uh, if we do not have a mediator, uh, mediator who's also divine, what's at stake here is that we could not reconcile theologically the possibility of a mere man atoning for sin. This is what's at stake. If we take away the deity of God, we don't have a proper representation for us uh, in the atonement for sin, right? The, the, the sacrifice that's required for man's dilemma must not only come from one who is fully man, but also one who is fully spotless and without sin. And we know in Mark 10, 18, it says that only God is good. And therefore, the only one qualified to be a spotless lamb, the only one that was good on earth was Jesus Christ. And this is so because of his divine nature. Let's move on to the second point, his humanity. Jesus is not only divine, he is also human. And in defense of his humanity, here's a list of different verses that we can look at that speak on the fact that Jesus was man. Uh, first of all, consider the fact that he was born of a woman. Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, uh, he was also called Mary's son. So it wasn't like um, he wasn't human, he was just sort of adopted sort of thing, and he, he, he didn't take on 
a real relationship as a son. Um, we see that in Luke 2, 7, where it says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And so again, you see, this is, he's called in Scripture, Mary's son. He was also a physical descendant of David, according to the flesh. You see this in Romans 1.3, where it says, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Now, if that isn't enough, we can clearly see his humanity as we see him experience physical reactions. You see in passages of scripture where uh, certain passages talk about how Jesus reacted and his reactions were very human. For example, Matthew 4.2 says that he was hungry. John 19.20 says that he was thirsty. John 4.6 says that he was fatigued. John 11.35 says that he wept. Luke 19.41 says that he wailed. Mark 7.34 says that he sighed. And Mark 8.12 says that he groaned. And these are all expressions of being a human who is limited, in a sense, to uh, the nature of his body. Now, why is it important to recognize Christ's humanity? It's important because in order for someone to pay for our sins, they must stand in our place in every way. Since man sinned, it was necessary that the the penalty should be borne by man. He could not be a sinful man because then he would forfeit his own life and could therefore not atone for anyone else's. He would have to be in every respect, including soul and body, human in order to stand the test of every trial and temptation and be the victory over sin for us in every single sense. Look what it says in Philippians uh, 2, 5 through 8. Can someone read that? Thank you. And this also speaks against many of the heresies that we talked about earlier in our little pop quiz that we did. Uh, The early church had to fight against any notion that the Son of God was not 100% man, along with defending the fact that the Son of God was also 100% God. They had to defend those, those points, because if we lost that, we lost the atonement. We lost salvation. Those are two necessary requirements in order for us to have salvation. Right? Both the deity and the humanity of Christ are essential to the accomplishment of salvation. Now, granted, if man's ultimate need was simply salvation from, let's say, demonic possession, then it wouldn't matter. Right? In that case, God can send the archangel Michael to just fight the demons. Or if man's issue was that he needed a positive example to set him on the right path, then in that case the Savior would not have to meet that criteria of one who could atone for man's sins. However, this is not the case. Man's issue is God's wrath, right? That's man's issue. He has has, 
uh, God's wrath over him. Man is born as an enemy of God, and only God himself can restore that relationship, and it is through atonement. And again, Jesus being fully divine and fully man is the only fit mediator, the only possible, or excuse me, the only possibility of a spotless lamb that can take our place as a legitimate sacrifice is the person of Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus, when we proclaim and we speak about Jesus, he has to be proclaimed not as one way of salvation, but in fact the only way of salvation. And this is when we talk to anyone of different religions, right? We can speak to a Muslim and they have references of Jesus in their Quran. But when we talk about Jesus, uh, we have to proclaim him and speak of him as the only way of salvation. And it is, it, it, it's, it's, it has to be that way uh, by virtue of what is necessary for salvation and also what the Bible speaks on who Christ is and how they work together. Um, and, and it's the only way that both uh, can work together is if Jesus Christ meets those qualifications. And he does according to the Bible. Uh, so again, if our, our dilemma is sin, then we need an atonement and Jesus Christ is the only one qualified for that. Point number three uh, on the handout we see is his sinlessness. This is another qualification that is necessary for our salvation. Now, in light of Christ's divinity and humanity, the gospel or the gospels tell us of a child who is born of Mary, but conceived while Mary was a virgin, which allowed Christ not to inherit the sinful and corrupt nature of Adam that's found in man. Right? This is why uh, it was a conception uh, while she was a virgin. Uh, this is God planting the uh, seed in her. And this is who we see in Jesus Christ. Christ was not only born without the corrupt nature that we get from Adam, but we also see that in Jesus' life, he lived out a life of purity and sinlessness, never to commit a sin. Look at how he's described in Hebrews 7.26. Can someone read that? For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Thank you. So, again, this is, this is God in his wisdom planning the perfect possible way to rescue sinful people without compromising his holiness. And he did so by providing a spotless lamb as a sacrifice for our sins. Can you imagine uh, a man existing with no sin in his mind, in his heart, hidden anywhere in his being? He was spotless. 1 Peter 1, 18-19 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus Christ was sinless, had no blemish or spot. 1 Peter 2.22, can someone read that? Amen. Then uh, 1 John 3.5, can someone read that? You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Thank you. So we... See in multiple verses, multiple passages that Jesus Christ had no sin. 
And again, to be a legitimate sacrifice, Jesus had to be without spot or blemish. We know this because of what we see in the Mosaic Law. A sacrifice could have no defects. Right? Look at Exodus 12.5. It says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And because of that, we see in Hebrews 10.5, Jesus saying, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. All right? And in that body that was prepared, Jesus came down willingly and offered his body as a sacrifice for the elect. We would, not, we would not be able to worship or please God or even enjoy God apart from this sacrifice that Jesus made with his own body. So praise God for what the Lord has done by sending a spotless lamb. Let's look at point number four, which is his humiliation. Now we've talked about Jesus as God. We've also talked about his humanity. We've discussed his sinlessness. And as glorious as the Lord is, with all the splendor and majesty and holiness, we now come across a verse that seems so contrary to the vision of the Lord being so high and lifted up. Right? When we think about God, the God of the universe, we ought to think of him seated on high, above his creation, ruler of all things. All of a sudden, we go to Matthew 8.20, and we read this. It says, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, considering that the Son of God was always with the Father in all of eternity, and he was always with the Spirit, high and lifted up throughout all eternity above his creation as the God of the universe, when we fast forward into the New Testament, we, we, we look at this scene where the Son of God is without a place to rest his head. This is, this is extreme. If anyone has the right to anything in creation, including a place of rest, it's our Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe. And yet, at one point, which we see here in Matthew 8.20, he was experiencing the lowest of lows. How is it possible that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests? And these are God's creation. God created the foxes. In fact, God created the holes for the foxes. God created the birds and also created the nests for them. And yet God, or the God-man, enters into the world and he has no place to rest. This is the lowest of lows. How can it be that the Lord of glory, creator of the universe, is then described in the way that we see in Psalm 22, 6? Look at what it says here. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. This is how our God was being treated. Consider what it says in Isaiah 53, 3. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. This is the creator of the universe. And he, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. 
despised by his creatures. Now these verses speak on what we call the humiliation of Christ. Jesus humbled himself in order that he would save men. If you can imagine, think, think about your own experiences, right? If you can imagine a very humbling experience in your life. I can, I can tell you many at my job, but um, we don't have to go there. But imagine for yourself, uh, think about the most humbling experiences that you've had in the past. Something that brought you so low to the point where you couldn't be broken enough. Uh, you, were, you were broken to the max. Think about that experience. That experience would still not compare to the level of humility that Jesus Christ experienced. As Mark Jones says in his book, Knowing Christ, no one has ever descended so low simply because no one has ever come from so high. This is speaking about Jesus Christ. And again, much more can be said about Christ's humiliation, especially with regards to the crucifixion itself. But for the sake of time, I want to end with a quote from Basil of uh, Caesarea. He's, he's from 330 A.D. Uh, he was an early church father who was, uh, he, he was in support of the, the Christology that was established in the Nicene Creed. Listen carefully as he wonderfully breaks down the humility of Christ during his life. Check this out. He says this, and I quote, As an infant, he was straightway laid in a cave and not upon a couch, but a manger. In the house of a carpenter and of a mother who was poor, he was subject to his mother and her spouse. This is God, okay? He was subject to his mother and her spouse. He was taught and he paid heed to what he needed not to be told. He asked questions, but even in his asking, he won admiration for his wisdom. He submitted to John, right? John the Baptist. The Lord received baptism at the hands of his servant. He did not make us of the, of the marvelous power that he possessed to resist any of those who attacked him. But, as if yielding to superior force, he allowed temporal authority to exercise the power proper to it. He was brought before the high priest as though a criminal and then led to the governor. He bore calamities in silence and submitted to his sentence, although he could have refuted the false witness. He was spat upon by slaves and by the vilest menials. He delivered himself up to death, the most shameful death known to men. Thus, from his birth to the end of his life, he experienced all the exigencies that befall mankind. And after displaying humility to such a degree, he manifested his glory, associating him, so associating with himself in glory those who had shared his disgrace. End quote. You see all these things that describe the humility of Christ, and then towards the end, the way he describes how in the end of all that suffering and humiliation, he associates himself with the people who reject him, spit upon him, and uh, share disgrace of him. And again, this is the humiliation of our Lord. And to know that he did this so that we could be saved 
ought to bring us to our knees in repentance and humility before God. The scriptures say in John 3 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. His love was the motivation for his humiliation. And for that we ought to worship him for all eternity because he's worthy of our worship, especially in light of what we just read. It reminds me of the great hymn, And Can It Be? You guys remember that, right? We sing it here. And can it be that I should gain? Uh, one of the verses, I was going to sing it, but I'm not going to sing it. Um, I'll, just, I'll just read it to you. But one of the verses uh, expresses Christ's love for his elect and his humiliation. It says, He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and, and blend for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? So as we think in summary of all that was necessary in the accomplishment of our salvation, we're able to see that there are essential elements to the personal work of Christ that can never be compromised. And we identified them, right? Christ's divinity, Christ's humanity, Christ's sinlessness, and also Christ's humiliation. Uh, my prayer is that we meditate on the riches of these truths and may it be food to our souls as we seek to grow in the fullness of Christ. Uh, next week, Pastor Ron, he'll continue with part two of this, uh, this same topic, the accomplishment of uh, salvation. And he's going to talk about the, the passion of Christ and the details of the transaction that took place for our justification uh, that was done uh, on the cross. So any questions or comments? As we close out, any thoughts, sir? Okay, so I'm still not totally sure, but um, sure. did his divinity have a soul and a mind? Good question. Uh, did his divinity have a soul and a mind? When, when we talk about Christ's divinity, it, we, we have to immediately think about God and his attributes. So uh, his divinity doesn't have a soul in the way that man has soul, right? His divinity is God. So when we think about God, we think about his om omnipotence, his omnipresence, his, uh, you know, his, his love, mercy, grace, all these things that make up God what he is. That is uh, his divinity. In other words, when we think about the simplicity of God and all the attributes that make this God what he is, that is the divinity of the Son of God. So we, we don't want to separate uh, the Son of God as a different kind of person when you compare it to maybe the Father and the Son. He was in every respect the, the same in essence and being. So the, the only thing that we should say had a soul was the humanity of Christ. Um, and because what it means to have a soul is, is to be human. Um, that, that's part of being a human, your, your body and your soul. And so in that sense, that, that all should be attributed to his humanity. When we think about his divinity, we, we ought to immediately think about all that God is. And, and that was present with the humanity of, of Christ, but it wasn't mixed. Hopefully that's clear. Okay, excellent. Yeah. Anyone else? I, okay.
Um, also, it says, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. So that was his mind when he was here. That's right. And also, he was filled with the Holy Spirit just like we could be Amen. if we were walking. Amen. So that would be our power and our humility and so, and everything in our humanity. Amen. So we could have the... He had the spirit upon him, which is fully God, too. That's right. Filling him. That's right. Yeah, so his humanity was not in any way absent from the mind of God in the, in the same way that we, as Christians, uh, are not void of that either, right? We have the mind of Christ. We have the Holy Spirit uh, indwelling in us, and, and the same thing was with Christ. Good point. Thank you for clarifying that. Anyone else? Anything that might have been confusing? Okay. All right. If there's no other questions or comments, then I'll, I'll go ahead and pray. Our Father, we praise you for the person of Christ. Thank you for sending your son to be the perfect spotless lamb who, who has met all the requirements of the law that we fail to obey. Uh, you have given Christ to us. He is ours by faith, and in him we have life and life abundantly, and we thank you for that. May our worship be reflective of our gratitude towards you, and may we be filled with grateful hearts shaped by all that you have graciously done for us in Christ as we see in Scripture. Thank you for these promises, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys.